Okay, why don't we uh, stand together as a church? We'll read Ephesians 5, 22 to 24, and then verse 33. <clears throat> Wives, uh, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. He himself being the body, the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Verse 33. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see that she respects her husband. Please be seated. Well, today is the third uh, part of our marriage series. Uh, the first two was, um, came cons uh, consecutively, and then we had Easter. And so we're concluding with today's message to the, to the wives. Uh, but before we jump in, let me give you a quick review of the first two sermons. Um, in the first sermon, we uh, looked at the, God's design for marriage and his purpose behind it and how he created it with a perfect agenda in mind. Um, we saw that in Genesis chapter 2 with the, sort of the four eyes, if you will. But then it became marred by sin uh, through Adam and Eve's decisions. And if you remember, the consequences were as such in Genesis 3.16. He said to the wife, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And we spoke about uh, what this actually meant and uh, uh, how this actually would play out. And the, and the application went something like this. That with the, with the wife, she'll find herself wanting to resist her husband's leadership, to strike out on her own agenda, develop her own independent agenda, and suddenly manipulate her husband's rule. And the husband would find himself unreasonable, self-serving, and treating his wife as little more than a useful accessory to make his own life easier. Now, when we read that, that seemed like a bleak outlook on marriage, and why bother if that's how it's going to be? But we also spoke about the cure, the cure, and the solution that God provides in the scriptures for us. And he, he laid it out. That in Ephesians 5, uh, two weeks ago, in verse 25, we saw that the husbands were to pattern themselves after Jesus and the relationship he has with the church. And so the result would be this. He would model himself after Christ in self-sacrificial love. And so his love was to be tangible, involve tangible acts of selfless sacrifice of his whole self and costly service to the point of death with no expectation of return. So that was what the husband was to do. But now today we come to the wife. How does she fight against that, that consequence when she has a desire over her husband, but God has put him in the authority position? How does this work out? Well, she's to pattern herself after the church. The husband patterns herself after Jesus. <clears throat> she patterns herself after the church. Look at verse 24. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also is the wife to their husbands and everything. That's the pattern. The pattern is to be subject to, just like we as followers of Christ are subject to him, the wife is to copy the church and emulate the submission aspect in the, in the marriage. Now, as you can tell, submission is the complete opposite Complete opposite of the consequence of 316, isn't it? If her desire is to rule, and he says you're not to rule, th those are complete opposites. Now, the word in Greek is pretty simple. It's to place oneself underneath someone else, or to arrange one's life underneath another, or to bring oneself under the influence of another. 
um, even render obedience. But the key in this, it's willful. It's voluntary. So it's not like you're submitting with a, like a, an arm bar or, or like a, a chokehold. This, this is to voluntarily do so. This is what you're to do in a voluntary sense. Now, I get it. Like when we hear the word submission alone, like if I was even a woman in your position, that word alone like rubs me the wrong way. In fact, that rubs you the wrong way as a man when I have to lead, we'd have to do that in relationship to the government and things like that. Like, just, just, the word doesn't hold very uh, positive light, especially in our culture, and even in the church in some instances. I mean, we see it as a sign of weakness or inferiority. But my goal today is to help you through the scriptures see that that's not Paul's intent by using that word, and that is not what God has in mind in terms of an inferiority-type position. It's not demeaning in any ways, is what, is what I'm trying to say. So let's unpack this. First of all, Scripture makes it clear that this submission in no way suggests that the husband is superior to his wife in any way. It has nothing to do with superiority in moral issues, in intellect, in your spirituality, your position before Jesus. In 1 Peter 3.7, Peter speaks to husbands, he speaks to husbands and he says this, you are to honor your wife as fellow heirs of the grace of life. Notice those words. You're to honor her as fellow heirs. Um, I like the, the, um, to use the word co-heir. So in God's eyes, you're not superior. You're a co-heir, a fellow heir with Christ. So Jesus holds her husbands in the same way as he holds you, which is equal in value. So much so that he actually gives a strict warning right after that comment to the men. He says, husbands, if you do not honor her as a co-heir of Christ, your prayer life is hindered. So I like to, I am a visual guy. I picture an iron curtain, an iron wall from earth to heaven. And so I don't care how much you, you know, if you're treating her poorly and treat her as a, an inferior uh, person, you can get all on your knees all you want. You can cry out all you want. You can claim the Lord spoke to you all you want. Your prayers are not getting through to God. <laughs> Pretty strict warning. So, has nothing to do in Scripture with a superiority complex, or inferiority for that matter. But further proof, ladies, I think this is really important for you, that submissiveness, submissiveness is not to be seen as demeaning in any way, is to look to Jesus Christ. Do you know when Jesus was on earth that on two separate occasions he demonstrated submissiveness in this world? Can you think of them? The first one was when he was 12 years old in Luke chapter 2. Jesus has come to Jerusalem with his parents for the Passover. And the Passover has ended and the parents are on their way home. And a day later, mom and dad turn around and go, where's my son? And Jesus was missing. Could you imagine that? I mean, I, I've lost Jace uh, um, once at, um, where is it now? Heritage, uh, what's that place where the train is in Calgary? Heritage Park. Lost him there once at two years old. But even more scary was like last year in summer, or two years ago, we lost him at uh, Farragut State Park in uh, Idaho at the, at the roller coaster grounds and whatnot. I tell you, that was a freaky day. But anyway, um, they lost their son. And so they go back to um, Jerusalem to find him. And when they find him, 
He's in the temple. And they come up to him and say, why have you treated us this way? And Jesus astounds him with the answer. But then look at this. It says, he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and he continued in subjection to them. So his parents came and called him. He came with them and continued for the rest of his life in subjection to them. The NIV uses the word obedience. Interesting, right? Because in my translation in verse 22, wives be subject to your husbands. So Jesus Christ is a model for you in this way. Not only this, remember the Garden of Gethsemane. We know in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3, that he says, God is the head of Christ. And Christ is the head of the husband. So equal in, in, in value, but different roles. And look what happens in the garden. He's sweating drops of blood. He doesn't want the cross because he knows what is about to take place. And this is what he says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup, yet not my will, but yours be done. Here's what's really important, ladies. Would you ever see Jesus? Have you ever considered in your lifetime that Jesus is lesser in value to you than, than anyone else? Have you ever seen him as being weak or an inferior? You love and honor the Lord. And yet, what did he do? On two occasions in scripture, we have him submitting to earthly parents because that's God's design for children. And we have him submitting to the Father because that was God's design within the Trinity. And yet he is one of highest honor and dignity. You know why I think that's really important that we see these acts of submission by him? Because look at how he's defined in verse 23. Christ is the head of the church. So here we have him in one sense being the authority figure, the head, like the husband is, but in one sense we have him being submissive, like he asked the wife. Isn't this cool how we've always come back to God's character from the first sermon in terms of roles? God was the head, and he, what did he create women to be? A helper. God was not asking the wife to be anything less than he was willing to be himself. He was the head and the helper. Here we have Jesus being the head and the submissive one. <laughs> so again, the roles are clearly defined by the, the Trinity itself. The essence is wrapped up in God's character because he knows that's how the family is to function if it's going to be, have its best chance of survival and be healthy. So really important. But let's move on because Paul gives clar further clarification as to what submission really entails in verse 22 and 23. He says, wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. Now, the key phrase here in submission is as to the Lord. Those three words are super important because it helps us distinguish what this really means and what, what it really entails. So first of all, submission in the marriage is a universal principle. It's a universal principle. What do I mean by that? You're not off the hook, wives, if you're more mature. If you know the Bible better. If you're more educated if you make more money, if you happen to be working with, at the same time as your husband is. It's not an option. Uh, to, you're not off the hook if uh, you have more, more notoriety in society. So, so the principle is this. Um, wives be subject, but there's an exception clause if you know, you're smarter or you have more spiritual gifts or whatever. That's not the issue. This is just the way God created the family. 
Now, this is really fascinating, church. Like, you want to think about something cool or something to really think about and how this would practically play out? Dick Lucas, a few years ago, I was listening to him preach on um, 1 Timothy, and he's from London, England, and pastored for like 70 years. And he said this, he goes, he, he applied this to the, in terms of the queen. So think of the queen. So you're, you go, you're like, see ya, honey, love you, have a good day at work, right? You kiss your husband on the forehead, whatever, and she walks out the door, and she takes her position of authority in London over the whole country. And then she comes home and says, uh, you know, do this, do that, do this, do that. And God would say, queen, you got it backwards right now. <laughs> you may have that position in society, and the government might recognize you in that way, but that's not how you operate in the home. Imagine the roles and how things have to play in her head as she works out this principle as the Queen of England and how it operates in marriage. Just, just think about that. It's quite, it's quite remarkable. I'm glad Lucas brought that to my attention. But again, this is a universal principle. Now, you're also not off the hook if you feel he doesn't deserve it. <laughs> there are times when your husband, who you love um, and respect, is not a great guy to be around. But it has nothing to do with whether he deserves it or not. What if he's disobedient to the word of God? Peter, in 1 Peter chapter uh, 3, says, Even then, if he's disobedient, you are to do the same. And we're going to look at that passage later on. Now, as you can tell, this isn't easy and can be very difficult at times. But what the Lord calls you to is the same he calls husbands to. It's our, lo our love for you and your submission to us has nothing to do with being conditional upon what we're like. It's, it's unconditional. Andrew Lincoln in his commentary said this, both roles require self-denunciation. Both roles require self-denunciation. Now, some of you might be thinking, yeah, but uh, what about if he sins against me? Like, you know, he wants me to sin with him and so on and so forth. Well, this is why the ask to the Lord is so important. There's a caveat. If ask to the Lord is the means of subject, subjection, then he sets the standards for what the morality is in the home. It's the Lord's standards for marriage, not your husband's. So if he asks you to sin in any way or compromise in God's word in any way, you obey the Lord over your husband. But that's no different than the government. You obey the governing authorities until they ask you to go against God's design. And then you honor the Lord with your life. Same with work. You honor your, 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 your um, employer, if you're an employee, unless he asks you to sin, and then you take the Lord's ways over your master's. Now, I started sharing this, um, uh, uh, actually, I think Sharon's on, on Zoom. I was sharing this uh, with Sharon Ward one day about this whole thing, and uh, I started laughing, saying, yeah, could you imagine, like, being a husband that, you know, pulls up to the 7-Eleven <clears throat> and tells his wife to stay in the car while he goes and robs it and then comes back in and then pulls a submission card on her? And I started laughing, like, as a, as a, like a, a crazy joke, because, like, you know, that's the kind of thing God wouldn't want you to do. And she said to me, you laugh, but I've, I've experienced that. And I'm like, what do you mean? And she used to work for the parole like board. And she says, you wouldn't believe how many wives I would speak to who were in trouble with the law because their husbands did that very thing. 
They would ask them to sin in big ways, and so they'd be caught, but it was because of their, of their husbands or boyfriends or whatever that put them in that position. So I guess my scenario wasn't as far-fetched as I thought it was. So let's move on here, though, because in verse 33, Paul kind of summarizes what submission looks like with one word. He kind of interchanges one word for another. He says, see to it that wives must respect her husband. Respect. For Paul, respect and submission go hand in hand. They're, they're, they're kind of they're cousins. They're synonyms. <laughs> now that word, respect, in Greek just means to fear, but not fear like in a trepidation way, but in reverence and honor. So how does one respect a husband then in marriage? Well, Scripture makes it clear the primary means by which respect is shown is by the way she speaks with to him. Respect is primarily shown in, in many cases by the way she speaks to him. And the key passage is, is in 1 Peter chapter 3. Read this with me. He says, Wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if them, any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be one without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe their chaste and respectful behavior. So Peter says the language of the wife is often the means by which she tries to influence change, but he's saying don't do that. Don't do that. Now, let me clear up misconceptions here. He's not saying a wife is never to speak in the marriage. <laughs> Remember Proverbs 19.14, a wise wife is from the Lord. A prudent wife is from the Lord. And wisdom, according to chapters 1 and 2, comes from God. So how can you be wise unless you're declaring it, your wisdom? So it doesn't mean she can't give advice, help make decisions, um, help the husband mature in their faith. Or if they're an unbelieving husband, they, they can't share the gospel message with them. The key is the manner, the manner in which it's done. You see, Scripture makes it clear that a woman tends to be contentious, contentious and sort of cruel with her words. Consider these Proverbs. Proverbs 21.9. Better to live in a corner of the roof than to share a house with a contentious wife. Quarrelsome is the word contentious. Proverbs 21.19. Better to live in a desert than with a contentious and nagging wife. And Proverbs 27, 15, a contentious wife is like the dripping of a leaky roof in a rainstorm. Now, why is that there? It's not that men can't be cruel with their words, but generally speaking, Scripture understands that a woman tends to be argumentative and quarrelsome and demeaning as a means of trying to invoke change, as a way of trying to like, uh, take over the home. And for good reasons at times. <laughs> because often we're a bit slow to hear and slow to respond. But Peter makes it clear, even if he's disobedient to the word of God, you are not going to change your husband by just nagging on him and ragging on him. It ain't going to happen. It's through godly disposition. It's through godly disposition that gives you the best chance. It's the best chance of changing him. So what does this look like? What does respect look like in language? Or should I say, what does it sound like? It's not meeting your husband with criticism. 
It's not meeting him with disdain, but every time he suggests something or tries to influence something in the home. It's not squashing all his ideas and, and his decisions and disregarding everything he says. It's not undercutting him and second-guessing everything he tries to do. It's not giving insults and calling him names to try to motivate him. It's not nagging him and constantly giving guilt trips that he's not measuring up. It's not barking orders like he's one of the kids. It's not interrupting him and finishing his sentences when he's trying to get his, his uh, thoughts out. It's all these things, ladies. Sometimes it's not even the words, it's the tone of, wor- it's the tone of voice. And I don't know how, you all know what I mean by that. Now I get why we do it um, as ladies, because we're frustrated at times. And we're often in tough patches in marriage where our, where our husbands are kind of stubborn or, or aren't uh, even going God's way. So your, our, your attempt is to try to invoke change and make him step up to the plate by doing one of those tactics. But again, if you want the best chance, it's not a promise, but it's the best chance of creating change. It's to willing, willfully come underneath his directional headship of the home with respect. That's the best chance you have. Now, other ways to show respect, this, uh, I can't, this is not written in the Bible, but this is my own experience, and so you can disregard it if you like. <laughs> but body language has a lot to do with it, too. Every wife has that look. Every husband knows. If I were to put five faces of your wife and say, which one is the one that tells you that you're stupid and you're in the wrong? You'd say, it's that face right there. Every wife's got the look. That's a Roxette song, I think, actually. She's got the look. Yeah. Body language, right? I know we have it too when we get like unreasonable. But God's, I've already talked to us about what we're to do. <laughs> I've already uh, put the hammer down on the men. So, But ladies, you have that look. And so be careful because we know when that's disrespectful. And usually that look actually triggers us. That's, that'll either shut us down in silent treatment or it'll get as aggressive, and then the fight's on. But one that is in the Bible that I think is really important. Remember Genesis 2? I gave an illustration of the four eyes, independence, interdependence, intimacy, and innocence. Oftentimes, um, family, family can create tension with a husband in this area in terms of feeling disrespected. When the Lord commanded that a husband and wife leave and cleave the family of origin and move on to another, that was to create an own, their own independent unit. Now, this is not true of every wife, and it's sometimes a, a warning to men. But again, just generally speaking, uh, wives, when they move on to a new family unit, tend to be still relationally connected to the family of old. They still have a heart pull to the family of origin, and the parents know how to play that card. <laughs> So we have to be careful. Wives have to be careful in this. For example, uh, the wife phone or the, the in-laws phone or someone phones and says, I'd like you to come over for dinner or come here for Christmas or do this for Easter. And then the wife says, yeah, no problem. We'll be there. And then you go back to the husband and tell him, and then there's a fight song. You can't figure out why. Well, because he has an intrinsic understanding of what respect is, and he feels disrespected by you going ahead and schedules. 
purchases. You know, you have these, this agreement in the home about what the budget should look like and, and there's been no conversation. You come back with like $500 extra beyond what the conversation was, even though it was discussed prior. Things like that. And so the husband feels disrespected. Major decisions are wading through, like just in anything, whether it be to, you know, pursue education in one way or what to do with the kids or whatever. And then you just disregard him and don't even con uh, contemplate talking to him about it. But you go to your sister or you go to your brother or you go to your mom and dad for advice because you might even see them as being more trustworthy in these areas. The problem is the husband, when he hears about that later or fear, finds out about it through hearsay, there'll, there'll be a fight. And it's not that husbands are trying to control. It's not that husbands are trying to actually uh, uh, put their foot down. It's just that we are really proud of our family units. We are really proud of our own family. And we care about our own family. And so we want to. God's put it in us to want to break free from mom and dad and want to establish our own family. And so when you go to the old family, it makes us feel like we are lesser and not capable. I asked Janice if I could share an example or two from our marriage of how we've had to work through this, and she said, yeah. So she's gracious in this way. And I also asked Dan and Jody if I could share one from theirs, and he said, yeah. So here we go. What does this look like? What does this look like? I'll just give you two examples. I won't give you any examples from... Uh, the respect in terms of the verbal language because Janice and I have worked these things through and she's actually quite remarkable in these areas. I'm very fortunate to have her as a wife. I don't uh, get spoken down to. And even if I do, I can't even remember any incidents that I could use them as examples. So that shows you how far we've come in these areas. So she's a great woman for that. But I remember in the beginning, in, the, in terms of the family, she and I had, I had a house in Okotoks, she had a condo. And uh, so when we were first married, um, or, get, or engaged and getting to be married, and uh, we had to decide whose house to put up for sale. And so we said, well, we'll put up hers and her condo because she's a teacher in Calgary. Might as well just live here in Okotoks where I'm located and she could be located too. So she went and um, we were driving to Calgary together in her car and uh, she gets on the phone with her dad and starts talking to her about the condo, how much to sell it for, how much to do this for, once how to negotiate and stuff. And I could just feel myself getting smaller and smaller in the seat. <laughs> and she hung up the phone and then, you know, we got in a bit of a argument and I tried to explain to her, I said, why are you talking to your dad about how to negotiate this condo price and, and how much to sell it for and stuff when you and I are the ones who decided when this was to be sold, how it was to be sold, how, you know, all the finances had been worked through. And then she tried to explain that her dad was the one that she first bought the condo with and helped, her, and helped her make the decisions. And so she felt it was right to go back to him to do the same in the selling of it. So I had to help her walk through how that actually hurt and how that was not the way I wanted the family to work. And she got it. Proof that she got it was a few months later, we needed a lawnmower. Because I didn't own one at the time in my house. I used to hire someone to always cut my, cut my grass. So she wanted a lawnmower and she came to me one day and she says, Andrew, uh, do you mind if I call my dad to talk to him about buying a lawnmower? And I said, sure, well, how come? She goes, well, we don't have one and I don't want to pay a kid anymore to do it. We can just do it. And she says, but he, he's got a few and he's, cut, you know, he's owned them over the years and he probably knows 
quite a bit about it. Do you mind if we talk to him? I said, no problem, I totally get it. Then we moved on. So she learned from the previous experience, no fight. And the reason was is that she just said to me, do you mind? But if I had found out she'd gone and bought a lawnmower and talked to, talked to her dad first, I'd have felt so small again. So it's pretty cool, like how these kind of things work out. But then in Jody, one day Jody's in a Bible study, and uh, a woman in the Bible study got quite irate with her about something she said, and then called her a vicious name, like right in the Bible study. Jody went home and said to Dan, Dan said, how did it go at study tonight? And she goes, well, not that great. <laughs> I got called this name for what I said. And so Dan listened to her, and as Jody explained to Dan what went on, he, under, he, goes, he said to her, well, Jody, based on that clarification, I think it's important you call her to try to make the peace because I get now why you said what you did and how this all unfolded. She needs to hear this to bring reconciliation. And Jody said, under no circumstances, I'm calling her. Not a chance. I ain't doing it. And Dan's like, well, I think you should. Like, I think you should really call her because this is important. And she goes, I ain't doing it, Dan. And then Dan said, well, Jody, I'm asking you now. I'm asking you to do this. This is really important. And Jody knew what she meant. He meant, and so she went and did it. The result was peace. Again, Dan wasn't doing it because he was trying to be controlling. He believed it was for the best interest of the family and for the church's life, mind you, that that would be done. And so Jody like, willfully placed herself underneath Dan's leadership in order to do that. These are great examples of what it is to respect the husband in the home. Doesn't mean you'll always agree, but it's the way you can honor the Lord. It's the best way to serve Christ. Let me leave you with this. What do you do when you're at loggerheads? Two oxes hitting each other. You can't budge. And there's an impasse. Well, I've already told the, told the husbands this two weeks ago. You better make sure that your reason for not moving has nothing to do with selfishness and your own pride. As God is your witness, you better make sure that if you're at loggerheads, you're taking your, best, your wife's best interest in mind to the fullest degree and has nothing to do with pride. Because you're accountable to God. And if you do it out of the wrong motivations, you can get on your knees and pray all you want. Until that's reconciled with him, nothing is changing with your prayer life. However, may Christ be your example, women, in this example once again. He doesn't want to go to the cross, and the Father says, you got to go. God asked him to do something because it was for the betterment of the world. It was for the world's best interest that Jesus listened to the Father. And Jesus understood that and willfully subjected himself to the head, which was the Father, for the best interest of the world. And you women and us as husbands are absolutely grateful for what he did by being subject to the Father. <laughs> May he be your strength at times of impasse. You may not want to do it, but for, to honor the Lord, to honor the Lord, the best way you can serve Christ in that moment 
is to come underneath your father or underneath your husband's leadership, knowing that he'll be accountable to God if he chooses wrong, but also because the, Jesus Christ himself was your example. So, back to the consequence. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. How do you resist this? How do you resist this? You're to model yourself after the church. Willful submission. You're to voluntarily place yourself underneath the directional headship of their husband as a love expression to Jesus Christ. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. It's a way of honoring the Lord in your life and in your marriage. So I have some questions for you, just like I had questions for the men. Biblical submission of a wife to a husband is when she willfully comes underneath his directional headship of the home. Identify one major area in your marriage in which you find it hard to submit. Why does it matter? Identify one area that you find it hard to do this. Question two. Have you ever considered that by submitting to, submitting to or respecting your husband in the marriage, that it's a way in which you honor the Lord? It's the way in which you honor the Lord. How does this change your perspective? Number three, in what areas of your marriage could you be more gracious and respectful to your husband in the way you speak to him? What do you think your husband would say? Number four, the scriptures say that winning back an ungodly husband is best done through a wife's respectful behavior and not through contentious words. Up to this point in your marriage, which side would best characterize you? Are you contentious or do you model, model it with your behavior? What do you think needs to change and how do you think this may influence your husband to follow the Lord more, more, more greatly? Number five. This is a switching now to those who are single or those who are raising daughters. For those of you who are single who would like to get married or are raising daughters with the potential for marriage, what areas can you see in your life or your daughter's life that will need to be addressed in order to prepare you or them for marriage the God way intended, the way God intended? What godly attributes do you already possess that will be of great benefit to your future relationship? This is a self-analysis, right? As a single person or you're watching your daughters, what character attributes are going to be potentially problems in the marriage now that we understand what this looks like? But also, what, what work has the Lord done in your life already to prepare you for marriage that's going to be of great benefit? And finally, same question I asked the men, except in reverse. Are you willing to have enough humility to bring these questions before your husband and listen to his responses without becoming defensive? Father, thank you for your word. And um, 
for the truth that you have to proclaim to us. We would be lost without uh, direction, and everything you teach has its place in our lives. And uh, some of us are in more difficult relationships than others right now. Some might be in a, in a real great place and a real sort of honeymoon stage, and others might be going through trials. But wherever we are, I pray that you be the source of strength for us and that um, we would honor you by modeling what Paul has taught to us. That husbands would seek to love unconditionally and uh, that wives would seek to respect unconditionally. And uh, we just have to obviously, as Lincoln said, uh, do self-renunciation on a daily basis and look to you for the example of what that looked like, who begged for the cross to be not the path of um, forgiveness, but something else. And yet you said, there's no other way. So we thank you, God, for your example to us. And may we rely again, once again, on your strength in those tough times. So thank you for the marriages in our church, though. And we have great examples in Genesis House of people who have sought to uh, serve you in these, and we're reaping the fruit of them. And so we praise you for what you've done in our lives, too. In Christ's name. Amen.